This episode is brought to you by Trend, a marketplace where brands can source custom creative for any of their marketing needs. Need someone to make content for your ads? We got you. Need someone to make content for your own TikTok? We've got you covered too. Go to trend.io to learn more and go to trend.io slash podcast to keep up with the show. All right, so welcome DTC Pod. I'm joined today by my co-host Blaine. And today we have Jared from Muddy Bites. Jared, when I was looking at Muddy Bites, uh, you know, I thought it was like ice cream cones, but it seems like you don't necessarily need the ice cream here. So I'll pass it over to you. I find it a super interesting company. So we can't wait to hear more about your story. Tell us more about you and, and Muddy Bites. Yeah, so my name is Jared Seves, uh, co-founded Muddy Bites back in, you know, the idea was kind of in 2018, but really kind of got to like building the process, so to say, in 2019. And really the idea was like, you know, bottom part of a Sunday code, nobody's selling it. Why not us? And so really from there, you know, our journey kind of started through Kickstarter and crowdfunding kind of our first production run. I think at the time we we're like 18, 19 years old, basically broke college kids. Like we needed some money to kind of do this thing. And so our first go is go to Kickstarter and really Kickstarter kind of served as two avenues for us. Number one, fund that first production run, but also number two is see if, you know, other people like the idea of the bottom part of a Sunday cone. And so for us, you know, we set out to make or to do 10,000 bucks and that was really to kind of get us going. And we hit that within 48 hours. And really from there, it took us quite a while to kind of R&D and, and figure out how to make these cones at a, you know, a good pace so we can keep up production and demand and all that stuff. And so it took us a little while to kind of get the process up and running. But, you know, once we did and we figured out a process, we shipped them out to our customers and it was nothing but amazing feedback. And, you know, fast forward here to 2022 now we're really kind of expanding fast into the retail chains and we're pretty strong in the DTC side of things. So it's been a really crazy, you know, two to three years, so to say already. So it's, it's been amazing. That's really cool. And I think that's great that you were able to launch on Kickstarter and that's kind of how you got your first step. Cause I know a lot of the listeners kind of think about maybe they're toying around with an idea. They want to launch a brand and they say, okay, I've got this idea, but like, where do I go to get started? So you know, we've heard everything from people who, you know, are just start something themselves in their, their mom's kitchen to the kinds that'll kind of go out and maybe raise some funding to get something going. And then obviously there are a cohort of businesses who are able to launch and start something on Kickstarter. So maybe like, while we're, we're at it. What was that process like starting things on Kickstarter? How'd you get the idea? And like, what did it go like from crafting the campaign to finishing it out and having some money to get to get started with? Yeah. So, you know, obviously you need, you don't need, but like having some startup cash to kind of get going, especially when you're talking about a CPG brand, like it definitely helps a lot, pull a lot of levers. And for us, like, sure, we could have gone and raised money, but you know, that's like a three to six, maybe nine month process to go get a full round of fundraising. And like, we just don't want to do that. We just want to make sure the idea was worth it to other people. And so for us, we did kind of start in, and Tyler, my co-founders, he started in his mom's kitchen, just making samples and, you know, making things, making sure that it was a good product and so on and so forth. And for us, Kickstarter is kind of like this like channel to where, you know, we could put up a campaign. And for those that don't know Kickstarter, if you don't hit your goal within a 30, 60, whatever day campaign you want to do, you just don't get the money. So for us, it was like, okay, let's put it on Kickstarter. If it does really good, great, we'll get the money. And if it doesn't, okay, then we'll go back to the drawing board of either A, figuring out a new plan or B, maybe it wasn't a good deal or, you know, a good idea after all. 
And so really Kickstarter was kind of like a channel for us just to test it and see if it worked. Obviously it did. And here we are today. But the biggest thing that we learned about Kickstarter was even if you, they kind of helped you kind of set up a campaign and kind of get all the things that you might need and, and customer stuff and communicate with, you know, your backers as they call them. But the biggest thing about Kickstarter is if you make your campaign goal, ours was 10,000, we finished out just under 16,000. The thing is, you got to wait another 45 days until Kickstarter releases that money to you. I don't know why it's 45 days. It might just be from them clearing money from the customer's accounts, like whatever it is. But it's like it's 45 days of literally just sitting there waiting for that money to come, which we didn't really expect that kind of a delay. So it's like, okay, well, our delay is already 45 days. You know, Our timeline is already 45 days late and we're like, crap. So that's one thing we didn't really take into account. And maybe we misread it when we were signing up because we're so excited, but whatever. But that was one thing that we did not know getting started. And and maybe that's improved now too, because, you know, obviously it's been a few years, but yeah. I think you guys also tried initially to do the Kickstarter. It didn't go as expected. And then you did start it again with a different goal. Is that right? Yeah. Like, you know, what were you doing previously that got you that? You were relentlessly motivated to making this work, right? Because most people, Kickstarter didn't work. Oh, nobody wants to help this. I'm out. But you clearly, you know, really pushed to make this work. Yeah. So like the first run, and I get my dates mixed up because it's like it's been two or three years already. But, you know, we first launched and I think it was 2018 of like, okay, let's get $30,000 and let's try this. Obviously, we didn't get there. And so we went back to the drawing board. We kind of reorganized our team, different roles. We brought in a couple of different people. Um, and we kind of just basically built out a different plan or kind of different strategy. And then we're like, okay, 30000 at work. Let's maybe try 10000 If we get 10000 we can first try that first production run and uh, you know hit that within 48 hours. And so we knew we had a kind of a winner. So like even then it was like, fail sure let's try let's just try it one more time and so we did yeah that's awesome and i think it's especially in a space that you're in such a great way to get quick validation for market validation for what you're working on right and you have the capital to work with too but i think that point about being able to really think about read through the terms and know when the money's coming especially for when you have something that you need to deliver physically that's a really good point to consider for anyone who's thinking about maybe starting out and using the, whether it's Kickstarter, everything else, everything always takes a little bit longer than than you may think. So making sure you set your expectations accordingly. So the next question I would have after that is like, so now you've got launched your first Kickstarter. What was it like delivering that first batch? Like, how did you guys scale that up? What was the process in those, you know, first 45 days to, um, to your first delivery? What did, what did that look like? Yeah. So the first part was like, you know, making the production and then, you know, getting the bags and the inventory and creating those boxes to ship out to backers. So obviously that took some time and kind of a learning curve on its own. But once we did start shipping, it was like, okay, here goes our first batch. And now we sit here anxiously for, you know, two to five days, whatever it is, waiting for kind of that initial feedback. Part of us were like, okay, we, you know, we got 10,000 bucks on Kickstarter. Like what if this flops, you know, we just wasted, 10 grand we you know we put a lot of trust in these people trusting us and like we're a little bit skeptic and a little worried and you know right away reviews started pouring in that like a simple idea was such a great taste that like okay we have a winner and really from there is like okay we shipped out and i forget how many backers we have but it was thousands and it was like okay we shipped out thousands we got all these reviews like what's our next step and really from there, it took us a few months to kind of get, you know, new supplies and new inventory and all that stuff. 
because we manufacture everything in house. And so we had to kind of go through those loops and, you know, it took us a while. And then we eventually launched our online store on November 4th of 2019. Got it. Got it. So you basically, the orders came in, the first people you were sending to were all your Kickstarter backers. After that, you were like, okay, people like it. We're getting good reviews. And now let's run this up. Let's scale it up. And then the next steps from there, we're launching on, on Shopify. Is that right? Exactly. And really from there, first we had to upgrade our facility. I think we're in about like 400 square foot, like in a corner of a kitchen, basically. And uh, we had to upgrade. So we signed like a three-year lease for a 2,000 square foot facility to kind of expand across that. And uh, we outgrew that within three months. And we're like, crap, you know, we got this long lease. Like, what do we do? And so we just made it work for quite a while. But yeah, we launched on Shopify. And really from day one, I think day one we launched, we did like 25K in sales. And that was really just kind of all organic. And really from there for the next, you know, four to six months, it was like every single bag was sold before it was ever produced. We never really did Facebook ads because it just organically, like every bag was sold before it was produced. And so it really was kind of this process of like manufacturing, how do we increase the manufacturing? How do we speed up the manufacturing? And so it was really kind of a different kind of journey, so to say, because like, you know, most brands is like, how do I go out and market this better? How do I get more customers? And and really for us, it was kind of flipped. When you upgrade the facility like that from like 400 square feet to 2000 feet, I mean, was it smooth? Like every time it was like perfect timing or did you ever hit a point where like, you know, we have to return orders. We have to not take any more orders. We have to refund people um, or we have to like upgrade the facility earlier in anticipation, which makes cash flow harder. Like, you know, which end of the spectrum were you like earlier or later than? honestly, it's a little bit of all that. Like there are some points where we maybe had 2000 orders in the hole. And like for us to catch up on those, it'd take maybe two to three weeks. And so number one, we had full transparency with customers. You know, the message was, Hey, we got all these orders. Like we can't keep up. You guys are amazing. Like we just need some time. Please be patient. And we were really transparent with that for, you know, two to three years as we kind of got into better manufacturing for our process and really because of that, we built a really strong foundation for customers that have followed us from day one. But, you know, going back to like the facility thing, for us going from like 400 to 2000-ish, it was a fairly smooth process because like it was kind of that transition from Kickstarter to Shopify. But after we kind of got in our 2000 square foot facility and really kind of got going, like we had boxes up to the ceiling and we had, you know, 30 plus employees in there. And it was like, it was jam packed within a small facility to where after, you know, six months, whatever it was, like we needed a bigger space, but we were locked in this longer contract and like managing cash flow is like super tight. So we just created a day shift and a night shift. And this was in Ames, Iowa. So we found college students. It was really easy for us to find college students that are willing to come in and work for that. So it was really kind of good for us just being in Ames because of that finding, you know, easy work, so to say. But yeah, we, we quickly outgrew that space and, and yeah. I actually love that. We were talking offline that I lived in Iowa for three months recently for Techstars. And that's definitely an advantage. Like, you know, you're building this in Iowa. I wonder, you know, how differently it would have been if it's in LA or any major city in the CPG space where you're competing with all these people. And like, you know, maybe that would have changed, you know, how fast you scaled or, you know, the kind of mentoring that you potentially could have gotten yeah, just piggybacking off that. So did you grow up in Iowa? Are you from Iowa? And um, what was it like 
as Ramon said, like launching this sort of brand in Iowa, because I'm sure that's in LA or New York, you know, CPG brands are a dime a dozen. But why don't you talk a little bit about what that was kind of like? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a small town, probably 350 people, very small town. We even had a high school. We had no stoplights, like very small Iowa town. Grew up there after my sophomore year of high school, our private high school actually closed. And we had to merge with a different high school. So like, that's just how small kind of the area I grew up in. But really, you know, born and raised here. I live here as well. My wife is a high school teacher here. And so I work remotely here in my office. But, um, you know, growing a CPG brand in Iowa is definitely different. Like when I get on meetings, they always ask, like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Iowa. And 99% of people are like, wow, I've never heard of somebody being in Iowa. So it's an easy conversation starter. But in terms of like resources or like advisors and you know, people that have CPG experience here in Iowa, it's very slim. There's not a lot of, you know, people or resources, so to say, you know, even like our legal firm here in Iowa, they previously had no CPG experience. And so like we're switching as we grow here to, you know, a firm that does. And so it's just it's kind of switching some of those pieces that we started off on early and like kind of expanding upon them, you know, with more experience, you know, from like LA or Denver or whatever it might be. You know, another example is we went out to New York. Uh, one of our investors had a kind of a conference there. It's like from us being in Iowa, going to New York for the first time, it's like, you know, all the tall buildings and all, just like the nightlife, like it's just day and night difference. And it's kind of like an eye opener of that, like, sure, Iowa is really cool, but it's also really nice to travel. And that opened up kind of like the experience of like being able to travel. And, and that's a nice piece about, you know, working from home is you get to travel a little bit more. And so it just, it created a lot of different relationships by, you know, being from Iowa, but also traveling outside of Iowa. I'm curious if Iowa played a role in your retail distribution play. Yes and no. So like being here in Iowa, we've got Midwest chains like uh, Hy-Vee, Fairway Foods, just to name a couple. And so like that's where kind of like our starting kind of points were for retail. And it worked pretty nice because Hy-Vee, I think they have about 110-ish locations, like decent volume for uh, kind of a Midwest chain. And and really, once you start kind of expanding the retail to where you get maybe 500 to 1,000 doors, like it's almost like a chain reaction because, you know, different category buyers go to different stores just to see the market and stuff like that. And so it just kind of opens up more doors. And so really from the Midwest, we expanded, you know, east, west, south, north, and it just made it a lot easier to kind of expand, so to say. Yeah, and my question was going to be, you know, in the early days, obviously you launched on Kickstarter, but in terms of like geographical distribution of your first customers, right? Like where are the people, were they just everywhere? Was there any, were there any pockets that were, you know, of interest to you? Like what did that kind of look like early on? Yeah. You know, obviously due to see anybody in the U S can order from us and we could ship, but after a while we really saw more demographics out in California and New York and Texas, really, those are kind of the top three. And so like, what's nice is as we really kind of expanded retail, like we really, really expanded in retail here in October and really here in Q1 and Q2 of 2022. Um, it's like we know where the customers are. And so if we can get kind of in retail stores near them, it makes them, you know, go to the stores and buy them versus, you know, paying online and paying for shipping. But also if they can go to a store, it helps us move more volume within stores. And obviously if you can move more volume, you get more doors, you get more sales. Like it's just kind of a win-win. So obviously using some of those DDC metrics that lead into retail is a lot better kind of play for us and also helping you get into more stores. So, you know, I know there's a lot of CPG brands that are maybe doing it opposite, getting in stores first, then moving to DTC. 
for us, it was really nice doing DTC first, validate the product, make sure there's good market fit. And then you can use some of that data to find out what retailers you should be in, but also using some of that data to help you leverage to get into more doors as well. I 100% agree. I think there's kind of two different scenarios that you're seeing. You you have the older school brands, which you know they started their operations 10, 15, 20 years ago. They're operating and they see like Shopify coming up and they see they're like, oh, there's this is an opportunity for us. We should focus on our D2C efforts because there's a new channel for us. And then, you know, that's that becomes one part of their business. And then on the other hand, you have these nimble brands kind of like yourself that can start selling a food product totally online. And now you're all over the country. And now you can say, hey, we've got a ton of our customers in LA or in Texas. And now by launching and focusing on those distributors, you already know people are going to walk by on the shelf and be like, oh, I know that I, I know that brand. Like like, let me buy a couple of these, you know? So I think having that brand equity in the direct-to-consumer sense and then going into the stores, I think that's really an awesome position to be in. Yeah, and, and I would recommend it too for any brands that are listening to it. But obviously, if you've got like a nice intro to a store and, and you know you got the capacity to do it, like go for it. But for us, it was a really nice play going D2C first. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. One question that I'd have, and this is something that I've given some thought to, as you guys continue to like grow out in stores, are there any ways you're thinking about using those stores to like loop back customers into your D2C pipeline, like through anything, you know, physical on packaging or anything like that? Yes and no. You know, there's a lot of drink brands that put like a QR code on their package that maybe leads to like leaving a review or something on their site. We've kind of looked into it a little bit, but we haven't pulled the trigger just because we do packaging at pretty big volumes to lower our pricing. And so like we got to go through a bunch of stuff to do that first. But like there's definitely some stores will let you put like a shelf talker that says like, hey, you know, Iowa made or, you know, hey, check us out online. And then there's some stores that won't just because you're taking almost traffic or almost potential revenue from their store and bring it online. So there's a lot of kind of pros and cons and also do's and don'ts between retailers and online. Most retailers are very old school to where they do everything by the books and like it's very old school sales mentality and just, you know, being on shelf is the best that you can do versus online. So there's every retailer, every single distributor is different. Paperwork's different between everyone. It's just it's honestly like wild wild west of every retailer is different. It's it's a journey for sure. Totally. And that must be something that like you guys have to learn to navigate pretty quickly because you've got all these different distributors and I'm sure everyone has slightly different fine print, right? Yeah. Every single retailer has different paperwork, slotting, different SKU metrics. I mean, it's just, it's an endless cycle and it's just a process. It's almost like you need a full-time job just for one person to be filling out paperwork all day. It's just, it's never ending. So how do you think, like, from your company's perspective, how are you thinking about that in terms of, like, as it goes to strategy? So obviously, 
on the one hand, you have, okay, here are the locations we want to be in. Here are the general big distributors in these areas. But how are you thinking about as a business, like managing that process and who you partner with next? Like what's the strategy behind that? Just kind of build up the organization. So hiring key roles that, you know, maybe a sales director or VP of sales, and then, you know, building the sales team so forth underneath of that. That's kind of one direction. Another direction is, you know, hiring a VP of sales, director, whatever you want to call them. And then, you know, hiring four brokers across the U.S. And then the salesperson manages the brokers and the brokers help you get in stores. That's another direction. And then, you know, a third direction is literally very old school, just going door to door everywhere you can. And like, and I'm sure there's, you know, five more different directions you can always go. So there's a lot of different avenues that you can go between getting everywhere that you can we've kind of done a few and we're kind of going through some of those now it's almost like a trial and error brokers are it's very hard to find a good broker it's almost easier just to build out your internal sales team however it takes up more payroll it takes more hours to kind of build that team up so there's just a lot of pros and cons and every company is going to be different how you want to kind of attack retail so to say totally and then I guess the last question on, as that pertains to that mix between the distribution that you're doing physically versus what you're continuing to do online, like how do you think about that from a business perspective in terms of your mix? Like, are you guys focused on subscription stuff? Like, how are you analyzing this over the next, call it three to five years? Like in your perfect scenario, what does success over the next three to five looks, years look like in terms of mix and where you guys are focusing? Yeah, right now, you know, as we finished up 2021, our like mix was like 97% D2C in Amazon and then like 3% retail. This year, it's going to be probably like 75% retail, 25% D2C in Amazon. And that's without us like decreasing any budgets for D2C or anything like that. It's just like we're ramping up retail really, really hard. So, you know, over the next, you know, one to three years or whatever, retail is kind of our end game and we want to be everywhere that we can. And obviously that's going to mix up with the DTC side. You know, if we could be every single store across the country between Walmart, Target, like 7-Eleven, like everywhere, obviously DTC might slow down quite a bit just because if you can go to your store and buy it for cheaper than online, then sure. But, you know, either way, it's like we get sales because then the stores reorder, the distributors reorder. But for us, it's really just getting in more doors and, and, you know, creating brand awareness towards those doors for customers to go in there and buy them. I know you guys worked on social as well, like on the direct-to-consumer front. I think you guys had a heavy lean on on social and organic content. I want to hear more about that. Like, how did that play into your customer acquisition strategy for when you were really heavy on DTC? Yeah. I mean, early days of Money Bites, it was like me running our socials, Tyler helping out with socials. I mean, like we were wearing a million hats. We eventually got to the point where one, we can't do that. It's not sustainable. Burnout's real. And so we started just hiring key roles. Like we brought on Emma and Jessica under our social team. And now like they run everything. Like we don't tell them to do X, Y, Z. We kind of give them full control and they've done an amazing job. And like, that's been a learning curve for us to like hand that off, so to say. But really from there, it's like, one kind of key strategy that works really well for us is memes. You know, if you were to tell me a year ago to post a meme, I thought you were crazy. And our social team was like, let's just try it. And so we did. And now if you go look at our Instagram, every one of our meme posts gets like anywhere from maybe 500 to 
2000 likes and every other post gets anywhere from like a hundred to 400 likes. So like we get a big engagement when we do memes. And so we're kind of learning that like meme culture, we kind of fit into a little bit just because of the kind of the product itself, but also just the nostalgic of it. So it's like, it's just kind of learning some of the stuff. And obviously the more likes and engagement we get, the more brand awareness we can get. And that kind of ties into like TikTok too. I mean, we have videos on TikTok that have upwards of 20 million views and TikTok has 125,000 followers for us. Instagram has 61,000, I think. So like for us, it's just, you know, we only have really one product, our bites, right? And then each, and then we have three flavors now, but we ran milk chocolate for almost two years by itself. And so it's like, how do you come up with so much content for one skew or maybe three skews? And so that's where kind of like memes kind of came in. It's like, it's a different vertical of content and allows you not to just like, hey, go buy milk chocolate right now, but also have some fun with it. So for us, it's been kind of a, a learning curve, throw something up on social, see if it works. If it does, great. How do we recreate it? And if it doesn't work, cool. Let's go back to the drilling board. I feel like the name is so good too. Like I was looking at the name. I was I couldn't come up with a better name for for this product. Like uh was it always muddy bites? Like I feel like that is such a key component of the memes of the company and the content behind it. Yeah, you know, muddy bites has always been kind of the name since day one. We did a an exercise to maybe look at a different name just as we expanded to retail and stuff like that, and just nothing kind of clicked for us, and so we just kept it. We did rebrand in July of 2021 here. If you go on our Instagram and scroll all the way down, you'll see our old branding. And so it's like day and night on that kind of rebrand. And, and that rebrand was really focused around creating more of a nostalgic look, but also a better look for kind of the retail shelves and just kind of understanding and seeing kind of that retail landscape a little bit better for us. What was your background? So before you started this, like where were you in terms of like stage of your life? What were you studying? Like, Give me the whole background because now you're clearly versed on everything from, you know, from making the food to the marketing, to the social, to the distribution, to running the whole business. But like, what were you doing before this? Yeah, before I was at Iowa State University, I was studying business management. My like kind of plan at the time was like to go manage a restaurant or, you know, manage something, right? And then that summer, I took a construction job working from like 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. and just out in the hot Iowa weather all day. And after a month, I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Granted, it's not what I was studying, but like the idea was like, I didn't really want to work for somebody because like I just got almost kind of bullied at work, so to say, because I just didn't know what I was doing in construction. Um, And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit. I took up a job with a family friend working from like seven to noon. And then I had my whole afternoons open to just to kind of do something on my own. And I kind of took that time to build up a, uh, a company called Canio, which sold bracelets, anklets, and necklaces, basically buying 10 cent bracelets from Alibaba and selling them online for 15, 20 bucks. And we quickly grew that brand to hundred K plus. Um, and I was like 19, maybe 20 at the time. And so that's how I kind of got started in D2C and learning like email marketing and all that stuff. We exited that back in March, I think of 2018. And so then it was like six months, seven, eight, whatever months kind of doing like freelance web design. And and that's when like Ty Lopez came out the social media marketing agency. I don't know if you guys remember all that stuff. So I did some of that stuff. And then eventually, you know, Muddy Bites came to us and we uh, we started building it's really cool to hear what leads people to to launching these different brands. And I think, you know, also having 
had experience doing something similar in the D2C space and then being able to come back at it a second time around with Money Bites. I think that's a really cool story to be able to, you know, take all your experiences, know like, hey, yo, I don't want to be working construction. I don't want to be doing this. I'm going to learn how to do things in my free time myself and then take that tool set and apply it to something that's clearly demonstrated a whole bunch of growth over the last couple of years. I think that's awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess now in terms of like your day to day, how big is your team? You know, how big are your operations? Like, what are we talking? Yeah. You know, our operations right now we've got, we're actually leaning in, we've improved kind of our production process. And so we've got about, I want to say there's kind of a, a fine line that I want to share here. So I don't want to dive in too deep on kind of our team size right now, but we're pretty lean and tight. And really over the next kind of Q1, Q2 here in 2022, we're going to be expanding the team probably by, you know, another five to 10 roles between kind of sales and operations and marketing. So we're going to have a pretty big kind of hiring spree here to really kind of expand across kind of growing here in 2022 and really kind of that whole retail arm that we're growing into. Hey, so actually, when you start expanding to those roles, let me know and we'll share it with the DTC pod community. Hopefully we can help boost that process up because I know, you know, how slow hiring can be and how, how urgent it can be at the same time. Yeah, for sure. We're fortunate enough too that we have some really good advisors and investors that use some really good networks. Like we got a bunch of the RX Bar founders on our team. So they obviously know a lot of people too. So it makes kind of the hiring and kind of that process a little bit smoother just because they've done, you know, they sold RX Bar for 600 million, I think back in 2017. So like they've been there and done all that stuff. So it makes it a lot easier for us. So tell me, talk to me about like, when did you say, all right, we're going to raise funding for this? Did you ever have the option to go either route? Yeah. I mean, we could have kept bootstrapping. The biggest problem with our bootstrapping was that like production is always going to be kind of the holdup. Um, you know, it's going to kind of tie us down, so to say. And so we got to the point where we're like, okay, let's get some money in the business. Let's improve our production a little bit deeper to where it's not really a production issue. It turns more into like a sales and marketing issue. And so, you know, we raised some money, we did that. And really the other piece of that with raising more money was that way we can increase that production capacity, but also then expand into retail. Um, Really for us, you know, if we can be everywhere, you know, that's our end game, get acquired someday. Like that's kind of our goal versus just a DTC company. So really 2022 here is going to be kind of our breakout year in the retail. Right now, I'd say we're probably in about 500, 1,000 doors off the top of my head. And really by probably Q2, we might be in about fifteen to 20,000. So really you can imagine kind of a big, steep kind of up climb. And really from there, end of year, we hope to be 20, 30, maybe 40,000 doors. So it's going to be a really, really rampant period for us. That's like obviously a ton of scale that you're ramping up into. So what are the biggest like literal challenges in growing like that? Yeah. So we actually just had a two hour meeting this morning with one of our investors. And like one of the biggest things is like growing a company really from kind of like a startup phase to really kind of like a foundational company is really kind of like your company culture, kind of your organization and just how those pieces tie together. So like for us, it's like, okay, how do we go from a nimble team to a team of maybe 30, 40, 50 plus? And how do we keep the culture still like you know, intact and how do we do that efficiently? It's like, we're going through some of those exercises now, but also like, it's going to be a learning curve as we do it. You know, there might be some times that just are rough and there might be times that are really good and it all makes it worth it. So 
for us, that's like one piece that we're going to learn really heavy over the next, you know, Q2, Q2 or Q1, Q2 here is like making sure our culture is intact and making sure that, you know, we keep the team intact, so to say. The other piece of that is, you know, making sure demand and our production's in place for the retailers. You know, if a Walmart comes in and puts in like a $5 million PO for all the stores, like, can we meet that demand right away? Or is it going to take us six months to meet that? And so it's just kind of going through some of those exercises as well. So really going from kind of the startup to like a foundational company, it's, there's a lot of moving pieces that like, we're just kind of diving deep into now that we're going to really kind of be learning over the next, you know, two to three months. No, a hundred percent that, yeah. Anytime you're growing that fast, it's got to be almost scary sometimes, right? Like it's a totally different scale and you're starting to move fast and, and the stakes are all of a sudden so much higher. So that's really, I think the way that you guys are thinking about it though, in terms of like saying, Hey, let's think about if, if we get this order, are we going to be able to do it? What does that look like? I think being able to think through those things ahead of time are super, super important. And then other than that, in terms of, you know, day to day, like these days, right? Because I'm sure it's a little bit different from it was in the early days. So what does it look like for you? Are you guys, are you, you're, so like you said, you're working in Iowa, making memes in Iowa, but is your whole team out there with you in Iowa? Or are you guys a little bit remote? How are you guys thinking about it? And what's your day to day kind of look like? Yeah, so we've got four to five employees up in our warehouse in North Sioux City, South Dakota. We, you know, fulfill D2C orders, but also retail orders from there. I'm here in Northwest Iowa, and my other co-founder, Tyler, is kind of by the Des Moines area. And so we've got that team there, and then we've got our social media team up, or Emma, I should say, is up in Chicago. And then we've got Sarah that lives down in Ames. So we're a little bit spread out, but mainly kind of here in Iowa. Obviously, like we kind of, we started the company a little bit before COVID. So like remote work wasn't really like the biggest thing at the time. And, and obviously COVID made remote work like the thing. And so for us being remote, it works good. Obviously we got Zoom and stuff like, but one of the biggest things is we took our entire team out to Chicago, used, you know, credit card points to pay for the entire thing. And like just having everybody in one central location, you know, offer food and some drinks and, you know, just chatting and kind of building that culture together. It's like, it's unmatched. And so like for us, we're going to stay remote, but like we might do like quarterly offsets to where everybody gets together and we just have fun, but also, you know, get some work done kind of thing. So that's like one thing that we're going to be doing here day to day for myself. You know, I get up probably about seven or so, go to the gym, clean up. I'm in my office by nine and then really from, you know, nine to about four o'clock or so, four or five o'clock, you know, I'm on my computer meetings, emails, graphics. I do a lot of our design work between like our website and like graphics for retailers and stuff like that, email designs. So I do a lot of that stuff that's like in the business, like kind of the nitty gritty stuff. And like, that's another learning curve for the next kind of two to three months as we really expand the organization is like kind of getting away from kind of those in tasks and more so like on the business. And so like, that's gonna be a learning curve for us is like, how do we do that? And how do we kind of make that transition? So really, it's going to be a pretty big jump for us, and we're pretty excited. I try to have a really good work-life balance. I, you know, by four or five o'clock, I try to get off my computer, go spend time with my wife, have supper, watch some TV shows. Like, try to unplug because I think burnout's real. I used to do that in college where I'd work like twenty-four-seven, and it got to the point where like it's just not sustainable. And so I try to have a really good work-life balance. No, I think that's super important to be able to balance, but have some structure to it, so you know you can kind of 
separate and unplug when you need to. One of the last questions that I had, and Ramon, you can chime in anything else if, if you were wondering, but I think we're kind of entering a really interesting time where we're seeing ton of upstart CPG brands that are, and I think there's an opportunity where for the longest time, getting in stores was the only way to do it. So creating a brand and launching it, especially a CPG brand, wasn't necessarily the easiest thing. And then now through different things like Kickstarter or whatever, you're able to create a great product with a community, launch it online, grow up a, a D2C brand, and then start to, like you guys are doing, expand into stores. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of people doing it, and it's a, it is you know a competitive space. So if you had to just like kind of evaluate the landscape as you kind of see things unfolding over the next couple of years, and how do you kind of you know make sure you're ahead of the pack and competing for the shelf space and competing for mindshare and and doing what you're doing? I think you're off to a great start. Obviously, having a unique product offering that other people aren't doing, I think that's a a huge leg up, but just in general, in terms of the landscape, how do you kind of see things playing out? And how are you kind of trying to position yourself to make sure that you guys are ahead of the pack? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing with D2C right now is I think there's companies popping up left and right between like organic and like vegan, like super kind of like healthy type stuff between snacks. And like, what's kind of nice about us, especially like when we pitch like investors or anything like that, or even retailers, it's like, we're not like a better for you product. We're like, you know, we're sweet. We're not healthy. Like, you know, it's, we're not trying to pitch you like we're better for you. So it, it actually makes retailers happy because like we're seeing that in retail space and also D2C is like, everything's like better for you and, and we're not. And so that makes us a little bit different there. The other piece that's an advantage for us is like, we're basically creating a new category of snacks. You know, we're not another cookie bar. We're not a um, another Oreo. You know, that's a big question we get from retailers. Is what category do you guys put us in? Are we in the crackers? Are we in the cookies? Are we in the chocolates? And so for us, it's like we're almost creating a category. So that allows us to be different as well for also D2C, but also as we get into retail. So it's kind of, it has its pros and cons, right? So it definitely has some its challenges on its advantages. But across the landscape, you know, the biggest thing I see is D2C is a lot more healthier. And really, and I'm sure you guys see the same thing, the branding. Like the branding used to be like here. Now all the branding's up here to where people are spending a lot of money on branding and really making their product look really, really premium. But with that is like, is your product premium? And I've tried some brands where the branding's really, really good, but the product itself is not so good. And so I think there's a fine line of trying to combine both of those. Totally. Ramon, any last thoughts? Well, no, I mean, I think, look, I'm, we're excited for what's next. It seems, you know, ramping up the team, going heavy into retail. But, you know, is there anything else we're missing in terms of, you know, what's the big next thing for Muddy Bites in 2022? And then how can people, you know, keep up with Muddy Bites and, and keep up with Jared? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it a few times. The biggest thing for us is expanding here in retail in 2022. But also, you know, expand our product line, introduce new flavors. Um, we've caught, I think, five planned for this year. And we do some fun drops where we only allow a certain number of bags to be sold. So be on the lookout for our D2C site for some of that stuff. But otherwise, you know, our website's moneybites.com. All of our socials are at moneybites. And if everybody wants to connect with me, my at is just at Jared Stephens on Twitter. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Jared. Wishing you nothing but success. And that's a wrap. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys.